Okay, should should I introduce us? Should I like I get should we start? Let's do it. All right, welcome to Turn It Over Again, a brand new podcast where our lefty, queer, trans, chavrusa picks apart Jewish art and entertainment instead of scripture. Um, so yeah, this is our first time doing this. I am nervous and excited, and um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Did did you want to say anything about like who you are, introduce yourself, and we can talk about how we met. Yes, sure. Um, all right, I'm Dade. Uh, I live in Pittsburgh, and I moved here because a friend of mine, David Schlitt, who I met um, sorting and cataloging issues of Sovetische Heimland, the Soviet state-sponsored Yiddish literary journal at the Yiddish Book Center 10, I think 10 years ago. Oh, and. Wow. David and I, you know, like, that's the thing that the Yiddish Book Center wants to do is have young people working hard to catalog Yiddish literature, building connections. I have plenty of critique about that, their mission, but it did work. David, who was at the time at Michigan doing a PhD in Jewish history, became a very dear friend of mine. He invited me to visit Pittsburgh, and then I fell in love and I moved here. Um, And so I say this because I'm in Pittsburgh because of Yiddish and because of Jewish history in a lot of ways. Um... David was working as the historian at the Rao Jewish Archives here, you know, and so when I came to visit, the things that he showed me to convince me to live here were the tiny 120-year-old synagogues surrounding the steel mill in Braddock. Wow. So thinking about Jewish history in landscape is just like so essential to how I try to be in the world, you know. You know, and for a while I was a PhD student in Jewish history, and for a while I was an editor at Ingeveb the Yiddish Studies Journal, but now I am not officially anything Jewish or scholarly. They just matter to me a lot. Yeah. And yeah, so I guess the thing I want to say too about Zoe, how you and I met is I th- I think we followed each other from Lex on Instagram. Is that uh, true? I mean, I was definitely on Lex around that time and that's possible. I remember following you on Instagram it could have been Lex. I. <laughs> that's really funny. I didn't remember I really, that part. <laughs> yeah. I believe yeah, I you. Think, and I think that I had, like, something, you know, like, trans Ashkenazi thinking about, like, whiteness and coal mining history. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that would have then- that would have definitely piqued my interest. I remember being at the time. All right, so I should introduce myself, too. I'm Zoe. I live currently in Lansing, Michigan. We'll be moving to Detroit soon. I'm a white Ashkenazi, pretty assimilated, upbringing, secular Jew. I've I've just been like in a several year process of drawing a lot closer to my Jewish identity, de-assimilating in a lot of ways, soaking up a lot of information, have become very interested in the Reconstructionist movement, in Yiddishism, in a lot of things. And at one point or another, perhaps through Lex, I did stumble across Dade's Instagram. Okay, so I remember that your your Instagram handle was Goalless Goals. So this is why I don't necessarily think that I found you knowing that you were Jewish. 
I think that I was I was in a time in my life when I was trying to follow a bunch of people on Instagram who were Jewish, and I remember seeing the handle Golas Goals and thinking, I don't know what that means, but it sounds Jewish. I bet this person is Jewish. And I clicked on your, the link in your bio, and I wasn't disappointed. And not only were you Jewish, but you had written this like really thoughtful piece about being in like a queer relationship as a Jew and like being in a relationship where some of your identities have like power or privilege over the other person's identities and some of their identities have power or privilege over your identities and just sort of like the messiness of of dealing with that responsibility to yourself and the other person. And I thought it was really beautiful and it really resonated with me very deeply. And I was like, I need to know who this person is. And then I remember I got a message from you. You were like, who are you? Do we know each other? And I was like, no, I just really liked this thing you wrote. And then I think from that point on, we just kind of, like, message each other every once in a while. You were definitely, like, my go-to person for, like, sharing Jewish memes with. (laughs) Yeah. And I can't remember how we got to the idea of doing this podcast exactly. Do you remember? No, I'm trying to think about it. And I I love that so much because I do remember, like, seeing you be really engaged on the internet, like, thinking with having a deeper relationship with Jewishness. And I liked that so much. And like, I think that that's probably how we started talking. Zoe here interjecting after the fact to add that I remembered an important step in Dave and Mice friendship, which was that early on in the coronavirus pandemic, I reached out to see if Dade would be interested in forming a Chavrusa with me, a traditional study partnership, to read Pirke Avos together, a text of Jewish ethics, which I had never read before. And that was a really great experience. We used it to relate to all kinds of things going on with social justice and the Black uprising of last summer, um, and really just kind of going through it deeply line by line. And that was definitely an important developmental step toward this project. Um, I also know that you have since quit Instagram, which is, I feel, highly admirable. Um, So I'm like, could I even like scroll (laughs) back and see our conversations? Do we, does it exist? How did this come to be? But maybe I don't need to like follow my archival impulses right now. Uh, um, yeah, I feel yeah. that. <laughs> I I probably am going to return to social media at some point. I keep saying that to myself, like, oh, I should go back on there. There's all these events and stuff that I'm missing out knowing about. And then keep on finding reasons to like put it off a little bit longer because it actually has been really good for my mental health to not be on social media. But yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I do feel a little bit out of the loop uh, sometimes. But I remember, let's see, I think you had sent me like a, a chapter about Fiddler on the Roof, like sort of a critique of white Ashkenazi Jews, like thinking that it was an accurate portrayal of shuttle life and analysis of different perspectives on that. That was pretty interesting. Then we, we started playing around with the idea of like doing that with some other like mainstays of Jewish culture. Yeah, right. So you say that and I like maybe posted a piece of that chapter on Instagram or something and we were emailing about it like the week that I decided to quit grad school. And oh, yeah. like it meant so much to me that we were having those conversations and that like you wanted to be just like talking about Jewish and particularly, like, Ashkenazi kind of history and culture uh, with me in a way that was just, like, not about school, which I was coming to understand was, like, really not good for me. Yeah, I remember it was just so helpful. Yeah, to know, like, in conversation with you, like, oh, right, this is just my life. Yeah, there's something that you, like, innately care about. 
and not because of like a degree or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that there are people in my life who like also care about this and we're just going to do this. We're just going to care about it over here. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, all right. So the, the premise of this podcast is that, you know, we, we, we pick like a topic to do with Jewish history or culture and we pick some piece of Jewish art or um, entertainment or literature that in some way relates to that. Um, and we can discuss them in light of each other. Um, so today uh, we were going to talk about what's known as the Hebrew Yiddish language wars and kind of talk about their politics and some of their relevance to gendered sexuality kind of the aftermath of that struggle between linguistic movements. And uh, and we're going to talk about the critically acclaimed TV show Stiesel, which we're both pretty big fans of. Or at least I am. I don't want to speak for you. Yes, absolutely both of us. Yes. So, all right. So something that I think would be helpful to maybe for, for some of our listeners would be to talk about you know, what Hebrew is, what modern Israeli Hebrew is, and what Yiddish is, just for some background information. Do you want to talk about that at all? (laughs) Oh, sure. I could do that. Right. So all three of these languages, Biblical Hebrew, Modern Hebrew, and Yiddish share an alphabet. Uh, So they all share the Hebrew alphabet, which functions differently. It's phonetic in Yiddish and not so in Hebrew. That's a rabbit hole we don't need to go down. But broadly speaking, I'll say that... uh, you know, biblical Hebrew is a Jewish religious and scholarly language that is what the Torah is written in. It's old and highly structured, and for many hundreds of years into the present, it is, is the sort of common religious language between Jews in many different lives in many different places around the world. Yiddish emerges sort of on the French-German border in probably the 11th or 12th century when in diaspora, some Jews who will come to be known as Ashkenazi, um, Ashkenaz meaning Germany, are living among German speakers in this part of Western Europe. Um, and, you know, as happens when people live together among languages, new languages emerge. And so Yiddish um, kind of comes out of an intersection between the biblical Hebrew that Jews are using religiously um, the German that they're surrounded by. And then it also has some influences from French. And then later it will acquire more influences from Slavic languages when Jews are largely kicked out of Western Europe and end up in Central and Eastern Europe, um, which is where we think of kind of Yiddishland today. Modern Hebrew, meanwhile, emerges in the 19th century. Uh, the sort of iconic figure who revives it is a man named Eliezer Ben Yehuda, though there's plenty of other people too, you know, nothing is really just one person. Right. Um, and what's much more important than this singular figure is the fact that modern Hebrew emerges in a moment of coalescing statehoods in Europe in the 19th century. What's happening is in Western Europe, in Germany, uh, you know, the reform movement comes out of a kind of like assimilated bourgeois German Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reform movement excises references to Zion, right, longing for Zion from the liturgy, not because they are early radical anti-Zionists, just as kind of 
modern political Zionism is coming into force, but rather because they want to signal to German Christians, we are just like you. Yeah. Please don't put this assumption of dual loyalty in which Jews will never be of where they are on us. No, no, no. We're good. Hebrew is our religious language. We're just like you. Yeah. Um, And this is because, right, 1871, the city-states that now make up modern Germany form into the modern country. That same year, the city-states making up Italy also converge. Um, And there's this kind of rising nationalism and sense of ethno-statehood happening really broadly in Europe. Mm. And that's actually where modern Hebrew comes from. Um, This sort of political Zionist movement that says like, oh shit, Jews in Europe, you know, in many places are not citizens, don't have rights, um, or can't be. This is about to be a real threat. You know, there's also lots of history that I know some, but not quite as much about um, in terms of the way that, you know, the British Empire is excited about colonizing the Middle East and they're really part of the driving force right behind a push for the modern state of Israel, Mm -hmm. which is crucial backstory that I have a glancing sense of. Um, But broadly speaking, modern Hebrew emerges in this moment as a way for certain Jews and to claim a, a modern sense of ethnic peoplehood in which nation, state, and language are coming into alignment. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that's that's a really good encapsulation of all three of those. And it's uh, I think it's interesting how you can't really talk about what those languages are without getting it into the, some of the politics of it already. Like, it's just kind of baked in. Um, yes. But just a, a couple other things, just for people that are brand new to this. Um, so, you know, Hebrew, like Dave was saying, is like this uh, language of scripture and liturgy and was was never a dead language exactly. It was it was kept alive, but primarily as a written language. Um, it wasn't the spoken language of everyday life for, for thousands of years, um, which is why it developed various pronunciations in diaspora um, that were influenced by local languages. So that's why you have um, in the Sephardi dialect um, a more limited sort of A-A-E-O-U kind of vowels um, in, in that dialect of Hebrew. Um, and that's why you have the transformation of the um, uh, you know, more of a th sound in biblical Hebrew to more of an s sound on that the ends of words um, in the Ashkenazi dialect um, because those you know are features that would be found in the languages that those dialects emerged from so like Spanish and German respectively like that's just a pretty natural process of a living language. And so um, this is also like the basic reason that some people say Shabbat Shalom and others say Good Shabbos, which is something that really confused me when I first started trying to get into Jewish community. I was like, why are these two things being said that mean the exact same thing? Where where does this come from? Um, That's kind of like the short version of why that is. And uh, yeah, so we've got modern Israeli Hebrew that's sort of something of a mishmash of these traditional Hebrew dialects, um, largely based on an Ashkenazi understanding of a Sephardi pronunciation of Hebrew. Something that I wanted to talk about a little bit um, before we get into the, the, the language wars of the past century or so is the evolution of a particular theological idea 
of Jews not changing their language. If you've been in Jewish spaces, you may have heard something along the lines of, uh, especially in relation to the Passover story, that our escape from Egypt happened in part because God liked that we, we didn't change our dress or our names or our language. That's like kind of an idea that's like floating in the ether. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to look at as we talk about, you know, what does it mean to not change your language? What's interesting is that this idea is a little bit vague. It's never stated anywhere directly in like Torah. There are some early rabbinic uh, interpretations that range from like the early, like the hundreds to 500s years CE. They were, they, they were basically saying like, okay, so why did the Jews merit to be taken out of Egypt in the Exodus story? Um, because they didn't have the Torah back then, so they couldn't have done any mitzvahs. Like, so what, what good deeds could they have done? So there were various uh, midrash that, that explained that there's these things they didn't change, and these lists consistently include language. Um, so that's like how this entered the collective Jewish consciousness. This is uh, something that Rambam cites when he says that this is uh, Maimonides, when he says that it's a mitzvah to learn Hebrew. So this has kind of had a long history. There's been some challenges to this idea. So it's really interesting. This idea of not changing your language became a foundational myth for some cultural separatist movements in Hungary, like the Satmar, but they had applied it to Yiddish. You kind of see throughout history that uh, the simultaneous uh, presence of Hebrew and um, some Jewish vernacular version of the of the local language is pretty ever present in in Jewish history throughout the world. Um, and so there's even this guy, uh, Rabbi Yakutiel Yehuda Halberstam, who is writing in New Jersey in 1977, who's saying that this idea of not changing your language is not about Hebrew. It's about um, it's about the local unique Jewish languages. It's about Yiddish. It's about Ladino. It's about um, you know Judeo Tat. It's whatever whatever local Jewish version of the local languages. And I found this sort of like echoed in in writing from this guy, Rabbi Francis Nataf, who's asking the question like, if this is true that like the merit is like that the, the Hebrews didn't change their name, dress, and language. Um, what about Moses? Because like he was raised in the Egyptian court. So obviously his name, dress, and language would have been Egyptian. And he's supposed to be like the greatest Jew ever. So what makes us Jewish is maintaining your identity in exile, even while assuming cultural trappings of hosts. A Jew is both a Jew and a universal man. That's how he puts it. It's just interesting, I think, to note the shift from um, this idea of preserving Hebrew at all costs to preserving a Jewish language at all costs. That, I think, is some of the backdrop uh, for these competing national languages that we see. Did do you want to talk more about the language wars and like what that looks like wow um oh i just i love your kind of history and context so much um and i'm like taking that in for a minute but 
Yes. Yeah, I think about the poet Uritzvi Greenberg all the time when I think about the sort of like Yiddish Hebrew language wars. Who is that? He was raised very religious in Poland and came up in the Warsaw modernist Yiddish literary scene that was happening in the teens and 20s, um, sort of post-World War One. And at the time, Poland is the hub of Bundism, um, which is this Jewish socialist movement one of whose sort of like major ideological strongholds is this idea of doikite, right? Like, which mm. means hereness, being hereness. Um, and the Bund happens in Yiddish. They have a very strong Yiddish Ashkenazi Polish self consciousness. Um, and, you know, so they're doing all kinds of writing contests where they're asking young people to write their biographies and send them in and creating this archive of Ashkenazi Jewish life um, in Poland especially, but kind of across Eastern Europe. And so I say this because um, doikite, this idea of hereness, is sort of directly antithetical um, to the idea of the necessity of a Jewish state, mm-hmm. um, kind of separate from wherever these Jews are. And, you know, and I'll say, right, this is also something that's happening among Ashkenazi Jews in a very particularly Slavic Eastern European context. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's not clear to me that um, the Bundists are operating with like any real awareness of other Jewish communities who are not Ashkenazi. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, of course they are, but it's not sort of like in the thrust of the self-articulation that's happening Mm -hmm. um, in Poland in this period. They're imagining themselves as European, I would say, more than broadly internationalist in this moment. Um, mm. All right, <clears throat> and I've gotten off track, but Uritzvi Greenberg, uh, right? So he's raised religious and is coming up in this modernist scene. And he, with um, Peretz Markish, another poet, and Peretz Hirschbein, yes, Uritzvi Greenberg and two men named Peretz, uh, they start this literary journal called Chaliastre, um, which means the gang. Um, and that's kind of how they're imagining themselves as these like, rough, scampy young poets who are shaking up Yiddish life and Jewish life in Warsaw. They're so excited about modernism. Um, Modernism can happen in Yiddish. Yiddish can be this like exciting, modern, alive, revolutionary language. Jews don't have to go anywhere else to live their Jewish lives. Um, Mm -hmm. It can happen right here where they are in Poland. Um, And Uritzvi Greenberg specifically is kind of obsessed with Christian white supremacy, basically. He writes extensively about Jesus, about um, Jews being uh, nailed to the cross of Europe and murdered for Europe's crimes. He is pissed. He is fucking pissed. His language is so electric and amazing. And he is just like in absolute blood rage about the ways in which Europe is treating Jews in this period. And he has this one amazing poem that's Uritzvi Afen Salem, Uritzvi on the cross, um, that's in the shape of a cross, and he imagines himself as Jesus and is using all this Christian imagery to express wow. this, like, I would say, I would argue even, like, a kind of Zionist rage, but I, not Zionist in the way that it's understood contemporarily, but rather mm. um, Zionist in a sort of broader sense of Jewish self-determination. Mm-hmm. Um and I, but I say this also with a complicating factor because Uritzvi Greenberg is pissed 
he's furious, he's really talented, he's publishing his work really widely, he's collaborating with these other Yiddish poets in this, like, beautiful, sexy literary scene that's happening in Warsaw in the early 20s. Mm-hmm. 30% of Poland is Jewish and something like, and at least that number in Warsaw, I think it might be higher. Um, wow. You know, there's so much life happening, and he become he knows that there are other Jews leaving kind of Ashkenaz leaving Eastern Europe to go to Mandate Palestine. Um, and he totally loses faith in the possibility of poetry to change things. And he quits Haliastra. He's like over this idea of the gang. And then he moves to Mandate Palestine and becomes a rifle bearing self-identified fascist. Um, Whoa. Did not see that coming. Right. Turns from Yiddish to Hebrew. Um, He'd been writing some Hebrew poetry as well, but he kind of like puts Yiddish down, puts poetry down, and adopts an explicitly Jewish fascist stance um, on the ground in Mandate Palestine um, Mm -hmm. and forms another organization with two other men, the name of which now escapes me, but also kind of invokes this idea of the gang. Um, And so it's very much about also kind of, you know, an expression of masculinity that has to do with physical violence, violence through weaponry, violence through claiming of land um, Mm -hmm. against Palestinians, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's wildly oversimplifying, you know? But I, I tell this story because when I was taught about Yiddish by very invested white Ashkenazi Yiddishists at institutions of Yiddish like the Yiddish Book Center and Columbia University 10 and 12 years ago, the story was very much like Yiddish was everybody's language. The great linguist Max Weinreich, who kind of was the first person to do like a linguistic scholarly study of Yiddish, you know, he talked about how a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. a direct quote from him, right? People know that quote. Um, Mm -hmm. And his claim is, you know, Yiddish was looked down upon by the Hebraists as a jargon, which translates to jargon, to no one's surprise. Um, You know, it was not as good as German. It was not as good as, you know, what the kind of more assimilated uh, Western European German Jews were doing. Um, And it was not as authentically Jewish as Hebrew, as this like new Mm -hmm. modern Hebrew. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Max Freinreich is very much on the defensive about that saying, just because Yiddish doesn't have guns doesn't mean it's not real. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. And so he's kind of making this critique about statehood and the possibility of statehood and military force as something useful or desirable for Jews. Um, Right. And so the kind of like Yiddish book center story about this is that, which is true, you know, is that like when the state of Israel was founded, newspapers published in Yiddish were banned for the first five years. You know, there was this very strong assimilating project um, of Jews by other Jews to mm-hmm. create a certain kind of Israeli Jew, muscle Jew, a certain like mm-hmm. masculinity associated with firearms, associated with colonization, associated with the land of Palestine, Israel. And all of that very tied into a homogenized Hebrew that borrowed a lot of Yiddish constructions um, mm-hmm. inside its function. You know, and I think about Mashlamech. Didn't I realize after the recording of this episode that they were actually thinking of Manishma 
you know, like a really basic Hebrew greeting literally translates to what have you heard? But that comes from the Yiddish, Vos Herzig. Yeah. Which means, of course, that like the founders of modern Hebrew were mostly what we would now understand as white Ashkenazi Jews who Mm -hmm. were not, you know, already in the land of Palestine um, Mm -hmm. and created a Hebrew that was in certain ways mapped from Yiddish um, and also a Hebrew that erased or minimized a lot of the glottal expressions much more common in, say, Judeo-Arabic mm-hmm. and uh, other, like, non-Yiddish Jewish languages, right? And, you know, pretty much everyone in Palestine at that time spoke Arabic, um, mm-hmm. which, not pretty much everyone, that's an exaggeration, but Arabic is, like, happening in a big way in Palestine mm-hmm. um, in a way that Yiddish is not, right? Glottal stops or, like, big glottal sounds read Arab, read brown, read mm-hmm. non-European, mm-hmm. and those yeah. get sort of cut from modern Hebrew. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I was reading about some of the decisions that were being made around what Hebrew should sound like, and something that stood out to me was that you have you have Ben Yehuda, who's sort of, um, who's sort of lifting up Arabic uh, and, and uh, maybe in, a, in sort of an exoticizing way, but... Uh, at least recognizing Hebrew as a Semitic language and 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 saying that it it should sound more like Arabic. And, you know, he's saying when, where we're missing words and we need to add words, we should be adding words from Arabic. Uh, I'm not a ben Yehuda, big Ben Yehuda fan, but I do think that's interesting to contrast that with uh, Yabotinsky, who's like this ultra-nationalist Hebraist. And he is actually like, no. Hebrew has nothing to do with Arabic. It's much, it's much more European. It's probably like Greek or Italian or one of these Mediterranean European languages. Um, he just like refuses to be associated with that, even though that's like completely ahistorical. There's like pseudoscience happening in, in a racist way and, and in a misogynist way uh, because uh, there's this critique of Ashkenazi Hebrew. I mean, these are mostly Ashkenazi Jews making this these decisions, but they are uh, in large part disgusted with the Ashkenazi dialect of Hebrew because they associate it with with Yiddish, right? There's like there's Hebrew words in Yiddish, but they have a different pronunciation from these other dialects, and they think of Yiddish as a woman's language, and there there are historical reasons for that, right? Yiddish is the, I mean, it's called Mamalotion. It uh, means mother tongue. It's the language that everyone was raised in growing up who's Eastern European Jew. And it would be the men who would be learning Hebrew by and large um, and, you know, to study Torah. So you have this um, gender system in thinking about the difference between Hebrew and Yiddish already. And then Beyond that, there's this sort of perception of the Ashkenazi pronunciation of Hebrew as a more feminine one, as this like weak endings, um, whereas they see the their perception of the Sephardi accents with like T's on the end instead of S's and like final stress on the word. So like Shabbat instead of Shabbos, like that's how they see it. And they think that that is more masculine and stronger. And like you said, they're trying to create this sort of like masculine Jewish identity 
as uh, Naomi Seidman says, it's a um, Hebrew as a recovery program for wounded Jewish masculinity. I mean, the idea that ending a word in an S instead of a T is more feminine is just subjective and meaningless. But (laughs) um, there's, uh, yeah, there's this whole stream of thought that is part of the decision-making process. And I don't want to like totally overstate the rejection of Hebrew, or sorry, the rejection of Yiddish um, as discussed with womanhood or even discussed with diaspora. There are also some practical reasons that that Hebrew made sense as a choice for statecraft. You know, when you're when you're trying to create uh, a somewhat artificial sense of uniformity among Jews from Europe and Jews from. Morocco and Jews from the Middle East, it makes sense to use the closest thing there is to a lingua franca, which is Hebrew. And so there, there's, there's some logic to it, but there's also just a lot of these like layers of race and gender that are happening at the same time that I think are definitely worth noticing. I wanted to uh, read just like just like a verse uh, from this poem that I found. Uh, it's called Yiddish is My Mama from Mem Mem Shafir, published in 1940. Uh, and this is like pretty explicit example of the gender metaphor. Loshen Koidish is my tate, di mama meine Yiddish. Deitsch is mir feste, is die schein achidish. So that means more or less uh, the holy tongue, Hebrew, is my father. My mother is Yiddish. German is my sister. Is she pretty? Shocking. Very, very explicit uh, representation of Hebrew as masculine, Yiddish as feminine. And then, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. I feel like defensiveness maybe almost around German. Because uh, a lot of the a lot of the disdain for Yiddish, I think, even precedes the Hebraist movement. Uh, with like Moses Mendelssohn and the Haskalah and like uh, these uh, figures of the Jewish, the Jewish version of the Enlightenment, who are attempting to assimilate into modernism and basically looking at at Yiddish as a perversion of German, of uh, kind of kind of like the jargon that you were talking about. So, um, yeah. So you've got like uh, part of this. Uh, competition for status as the Jewish national language, as Jews are forming a stronger national identity alongside all these all these other national movements. They have different advantages and disadvantages. Hebrew is kind of already seen as this prestigious, noble language, and Yiddish has already been sort of maligned as this, you know, perverted language, this uh, jargon. And then, uh, you know, Hebrew is this kind of lingua franca in a way. And then Yiddish also has advantages. It's, it is the language of the Jewish masses. It is the Jewish language spoken by the greatest number of Jews. And so it's kind of a, whether or not you agree with them, it, 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 you, have, you have to be impressed that within the span of 100 years or less really, the de facto Jewish language of the world, the language most closely associated with Jewish identity in a way, was, was flipped um, in this project, 
yeah, there's sort of this abandonment of the diphthongs, the oys, and the eyes of Ashkenazi Hebrew and Yiddish in favor of this sort of like clipped, curt monotone that we that we know Hebrew as today. And it's just really interesting because if you're a white Ashkenazi Jew, that dialect is probably what you are taught as Hebrew in synagogues, in Jewish community centers, in Hebrew school, whatever. Like, that's probably what you're taught, even though that's not your lineage. That's not my lineage. You know, for most of us, that doesn't have anything to do with us. But that's what we're taught is is Hebrew, like the one and only Hebrew. Another thing that I thought was interesting is, uh, you know, talking about how it's not really Sephardi. You mentioned how they, like, lose the glottal stops. Um, that are present in other dialects of Hebrew. And uh, something that I was reading in uh, Benjamin Harshav chapter is that, you know, it's not really the Sephardi dialect. It's this lowest comma denominator between the Ashkenazi and, and Sephardi dialects, um, where it combines the range of Ashkenazi consonants and Sephardi vowels, the minimal range in each case. So, um, so for example... You lose the distinction between the Pasach and the Kometz Aleph vowel. So like that would be something that Ashkenazi Hebrew would do and Sephardi Hebrew wouldn't do. But you also lose the distinction between the Ches and the Chof, which is something that like Sephardi Hebrew would do, but Ashkenazi Hebrew wouldn't do. And so you have this like very like simplified, homogenized form of Hebrew that, that is what we know today. Yeah. Did you want to add anything to like the gender stuff or the dialect stuff? Oh, I have gender stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I knew Naomi Seidman's work some, but I had not heard that quote about Hebrew as rehabilitation for Ashkenazi masculinity. Like, that's incredible. Isn't that great? Yeah, you know, and I think, like, the other piece of that, you know, when I think about, like, mama, you know, what you were saying about mama lotion and the, like, fundamental feminization of Jews and Yiddish by the, like... European Christian white supremacy that Uritz V. Mm. Greenberg was so aggrieved by, right? And then, like, he went and, like, butched up hard in, mm-hmm. you know, in Palestine, right? Also, like, something I've been thinking about a lot in the last year or so is this idea that, you know, Jews inside of, like, Christian white supremacist logic in this European context, particularly, Jews, like, are trans. Mm. Um, Say more about that. <laughs> um, right, I mean, so some of it is, like, you know, you, on the face, like Yiddish, Mama Lushin, it's feminized. Um, Jew, you know, Ashkenazi Jews themselves are creating Hebrew as this sort of like masculine vector for themselves. Um, but, you know, when I think about like European Christian texts happening in the era of Moses Mendelssohn, who you mentioned, right, and that's the 18th century, um, there's a lot of writing about one, you know, this idea that Jewish men can't be men, right? Like, one, there's this claim that Jewish men menstruate. Which, like, hello. What? Wait, what? Oh, yeah, it's just, like, in these texts. Um, that's just, like... Who's, who's writing this? Um, these are, like, very common, sort of, like... They're in, like, flyers that are happening in town. They're in, like, certain scholarly texts. That, like, Europeans are just making these claims that Jewish men menstruate. And also, by the way, um, these people who claim to be Jewish men who have penises can't possibly be men, like... It's not real, which is like, you know, okay, like. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, these anti-Semites weren't like uh, fiercely advocating for the rights of Jewish trans men in the 1800s. Uh, they were surely not. <laughs> they were surely not. But much at, you know, like, I find it really aspirational in the same way as that I, you know, white supremacy also believes that Jews hold all the power in this like certain way. And that the problem with Jews and what they mean is like white Ashkenazi Jews is that they can pass inside of white society Mm. and then undermine it from the inside. And I'm always like, thank you. I really hope so. Like, (laughs) you know, Uh. uh, and kind of similarly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Right. And I like these absolutely like anti-Semitic, which means transphobic in many ways, because the, the argument is like Jewish gender is always wrong. Jewish gender like isn't, what it's supposed to be you know and that relates to kind of like broader ideas of like racialized gender that c riley snorton writes about particularly pertaining to like blackness and transness um but because of white supremacy it's related um it's really like quite exciting to me to think about like well okay like if all of us jews are just gonna like fail at the genders that we're supposed to be inside of christian society like fuck them yeah we can't have the bodies that they that like white supremacy thinks like okay who needs yeah yeah that's oh yeah it's really interesting that you say that because because something that i that i wanted to say is that this idea you know originating with like moses Mendelssohn and these sort of germanophiles but also you know carrying forward into the hebraeus that yiddish is a perversion that like sort of european jewish culture is a perversion that argument holds very little sway over people that take pride in like an identity that's looked down on as being perverted so like i think that that's i mean i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself but i think that's a a lot of why uh yiddish yiddish kite uh resonates so much for so many queer and trans people jewish and non-jewish but yeah yeah oh that's so that's so fascinating i had i had not heard that So a couple other things about the way that Hebrew sort of supplanted Yiddish. Um, so, you know, they had, like you said, there were campaigns to sort of prevent things from being published in Yiddish. There were also school systems that were formed that basically taught only in Hebrew and stamped out Yiddish in the schools so that the younger generations would speak Hebrew. You also have, it's arguable, like, how effective this was, but you have various like projects early on of silencing women who mostly didn't speak Hebrew so that they wouldn't sort of contaminate the younger generation with their their Yiddish. So yeah, you have this whole movement to basically change the native language of a people. And yeah, like you were saying, like that in some ways this ideal Sephardi, quote unquote Sephardi Hebrew is superficial. You've got you've got not just Yiddish phonetics, you've got Yiddish vocabulary, you've got Yiddish expressions, you've got Yiddish tenses, syntax, and you also have because this like final stress on every word is so artificial um, and not really characteristic of a spoken language. You've you've got the introduction of vastly more words that have penultimate stress to create a rhythmic balance. And Be- Benjamin Harshav says about this phenomenon. This is the basic mode of the whole revival in Eretz Israel. 
an ideological decision and a drastic imposition of a new model of behavior, radically different from the diaspora past, is accompanied by a subtext of old behavior, which emerges with time. The Jew comes out from under the Hebrew. So there's like a few things that I, in my reading that I thought really illustrated this well. This idea of like traditional Ashkenazic Jewish modes of being or like Yiddish forms of expression just like sort of erupting from the repression. So there's a couple like parallel jokes that emerge from this era of the language wars. And um, I think there's probably more than these two, but these are two that I stumbled across. One is one that Naomi Seidman wrote about, uh, a Hebraist joke that is at the expense of a couple of Yiddishists who come to Palestine and they see some, um, some Israeli boys there. And one says to the other, you know, I bet they don't actually speak Hebrew as their, as their mother tongue. I bet if I pull this one on the ear, he'll yell out mama instead of ima. And so he does it, and the boy turns and yells at him, chamor, which means donkey. So this is like a Hebraist joke saying, like, not only is Hebrew our native tongue, we're also tougher than you. And then you have another joke that comes from like a Yiddishist side where they're saying, uh, and I read this one in Miriam Weinstein's Yiddish, A Nation of Words. There's this joke that I can't remember this one well enough to actually tell it, but it's something along the lines of of like visiting Yiddishist and some Israeli dignitary who ends up like falling in the water and he's drowning and he's calling out for help in Yiddish. And the Yiddishist is like basically like waiting for him to say it in Hebrew and letting him drown. <laughs> so um, the second joke might have more to it. Um, ben Yehuda's own son as an adult recalls ranting feverishly in Yiddish when he was sick once. Um, and this is the kid who famously was totally isolated from Yiddish to whatever extent possible to the point where like they like banned relatives or like um, servants like who spoke only Yiddish like from being around. And he Ben Yehuda would like throw a conniption fit if like his wife wanted to like sing a Russian lullaby or something. He's like only Hebrew, but like, I don't know. It's just like a very uh, crystal clear illustration that like Yiddish was the like bedrock and they could try to like put Hebrew on top of it. But it was a long time before that actually became anyone's actual mother tongue. Naomi Steidman says, Yiddish forms the suppressed or unconscious level that erupts into consciousness when psychic control weakens. All right, so let's talk about the denouement of this. Like, what happens? Yes, please. Um, can we pause? My computer says, please charge me. Uh, okay, yeah, totally. Okay, um, I'm going to, I will just be right back. Okay, no problem. Take your time. Is your recording still going? Yes. Cool. Mine too. Great. Okay. So, Dave, did you want to talk a little bit about 
how this sort of resolves? Like, where where do the language wars go? Yeah, I think before I went to get my laptop charger and accidentally turned off the power strip that also had the internet and everything else in the house, um, and turned <laughs> to you, um, you used the word denouement, which I also I, I liked so much. Um, yeah, I mean, right, so what happens, I mean, you know, it's impossible. No, that's not true. Um, it is... I sort of love that we haven't mentioned the Holocaust yet because I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of people who don't know anything about Ashkenazi culture, like what they know is the Holocaust as like Mm -hmm. a thing that happened to Ashkenazi Jews and also other Jews Mm -hmm. and other, you know, other people. But like politically, I'm really oriented toward an engagement with Ashkenazi culture that does not focus on the Holocaust particularly. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about actually in Sarah Shulman's new book, um, Let the Record Show, where she writes from the oral histories of almost 2,000 people who uh, were in ACT UP during the height of the AIDS crisis in New York City, she talks about as kind of the like methodological inspiration for this book and for like the mode of the oral history project that enabled it and preceded it, she turned to these particular um, oral historians who engaged with the Holocaust and their process was not, what they engaged with was actually who were these people before the Holocaust? Um, rather Mm -hmm. than like this assumption that, you know, something great and terrible changed people, but rather that something great and terrible, like say the Holocaust or the AIDS crisis, exacerbated what was already true for people. And Mm -hmm. um, that kind of focused on who were these people before this? Mm -hmm. Let's not let this particular like terrible thing be what they are in the way that we tell stories about them. Yeah. Um, And I love that particular, you know, Sarah Shulman was an anecdote from this who were these people before the Holocaust oral history project that, you know, talks about this woman who is like notoriously a pain in the ass, who'd been a pain in the ass since before the Holocaust. Like it was not Holocaust drama. She was just a pain in the ass. <laughs> and I love that. And I, and I say that too about Yiddish because I think in contemporary, less so in the last 10 or 15 years, but surely, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, when I was going to Hebrew school very much, I think like white American Jewish life, was really focused on this idea that the Holocaust was the worst and the only thing that had ever happened to Jews <laughs> in a certain sense. And that Yiddish, because of the Holocaust, could only mean grandparents, little musty rooms, lack of English skills, like embarrassing facets of immigration, um, mm. you know, in a certain way, very connected to the narrative of the state of Israel, you know, weak Jews who died in the Holocaust, um, Mm. when Yiddish is all these other things too. Um, Yeah. But, you know, it's also just true that of the, you know, like six million Jews who were killed in the Holocaust, like most of them were Yiddish speakers. And at the time there were nine million-ish Yiddish speakers in Europe. Um, You know, and so that's just like a material fact that... right huge culture and like a huge population of speakers of this minority language died. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think about, um, Rezel Zechlinski, also a Polish Yiddish poet who I study. She wrote a book that was published in, I think 1943 or 44 and no copies survived, you know, her like second or third book of poems, just like <laughs> out. Mm. Um, and I just, yeah. And so I say this just sort of like, as a material reality that we're like many Yiddishists and Yiddish speakers and Yiddish cultural workers were murdered in the Holocaust. And then, you know, three years after the end of world war two and the Holocaust, 
Israel is founded as a state. And so Hebrew is then codified as the Jewish language in this ethno-nationalist way. Yeah, you know, and it's a really hard thing in many ways, right? There aren't Yiddish-speaking communities in big numbers left in Europe. Mm-hmm. The Yiddish-speaking Jews in the U.S. are getting older and many of their kids are not learning Yiddish or are not speaking it exclusively or, you know, which is like a very common migration immigration yeah. story. Um, right. Not, you know, specific or exclusive to Yiddish at all. Um, well, it play, plays out a little bit differently when that language isn't alive back in the old country. Right. That's, yeah, and that's sort of like, I think about this term Yiddishland that uh, we get from Jeffrey Chandler, which is so much about like, how do we talk about this place where Yiddish was, which is Eastern Europe, largely the Russian Pale of Settlement and Poland and Lithuania, and then also kind of the Czech Republic and certain parts of Romania and, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know Czechoslovakia at the time, whatever. And in many of those places, Jews were tremendously disenfranchised, mm-hmm. subjected to loads of violence and often you know not citizens couldn't own land couldn't build infrastructure right and yiddish was not protected by the nations you know by the states excuse me in which these jews were living right although i will say that jews had citizenship in poland before the holocaust um Mm -hmm. and i think that's something actually people often don't know is that like there were jews owning land in poland in many ways there was like really rich and sometimes prosperous also also very poor sometimes, but like Jewish life was happening there. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's something that gets missed a lot in either the romanticization of pre-Holocaust life in Europe or in the sort of painting the picture of Jewish history as like one long traumatic misery. Yes. Um, The reality is that like, yes, like Christian hegemonic prejudice was like an ever-present thing in Europe, but the reality was a little bit more complex of like, different countries relaxing or tightening strictures on Jews um, at different times and places. So what you have is like a lot of expulsions and like sort of coerced migrations back and forth. And like there were places like Poland where like things were pretty good for the Jews at different times and then they were not so good and then they were pretty good again. And there's not like one consistent place that was like a Jewish homeland that was like dependable. Yes, absolutely. And I think what I'm kind of hearing underneath what I've said and also underneath what you've said, too, is that, like, you know, infrastructural support really matters, you know, as we know, like, as is true, like, all over. But, you know, in this case, it's like, where did the money and the state support go? And it went to Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even as I say that, I'll also say, like, you know, I think about, right, in the U.S. now there's this, like, not only in the U.S., but this kind of, like, bigger push for, like, funding for certain Yiddish programs for certain people in certain ways, you know, and I just want to say, like, you know, that's now there's like some of that happening also for Ladino, Judeo Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, gradations of power, maybe is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, totally. But yeah, it's hard without infrastructural support, you know. And I think about the fact that, like, uh, the USSR, right, established a Birobijan, this like Yiddish speaking, mm-hmm. this officially Yiddish speaking state in the sort of like far eastern part of the Soviet Union in Siberia. And, Yiddish is still being taught in schools there in a state that is now like 97% or something like ethnically Mongolian, but there's like continued Russian state support for Yiddish in this place with like a statue of Shalom Aleichem in the middle of town. Right. Um, In the Jewish autonomous region, I should say, Bidobidjan being the capital. Yeah. Right. How bizarre 
it is to think that like that's happening right in like far eastern Russia, but is not happening where there are like many more people who speak some Yiddish or whose ancestors or parents, you know, spoke Yiddish. Where it's an actual heritage language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the Soviet Union is um, is an interesting case because, like, you've got assimilation to, into English in the U.S. You've got the Hebrews sort of, like, stamping out Yiddish in, in Eretz Israel and Palestine. You've got assimilation into Western European languages and then the Shoah in continental Europe that decimated Yiddish there. And you have this brief period in the Soviet Union where they were actually like sponsoring Yiddish theater and Yiddish literature and um, like recognized Jews as um, as a nationality and uh, Yiddish as a national language for like a little while. I mean, granted, they were pretty anti-Semitic about it in the sort of like intensely uh, secular way that, you know, some communist socialist movements unfortunately carried with them where it's like, you can't spell Shabbos in the Lotion Koidish way. You have to spell it phonetically, just trying to eliminate anything Jewish about Yiddish, even though the, la- okay, the language literally means Jewish, like Yiddish is Jewish, <laughs> like, um, but they wanted it to be less Jewish. But at the same time, they were supporting a thriving Yiddish literary scene for like a brief period. And then there was like, anti-Semitic purges and like people basically had to like assimilate there too. I don't fully know the history there of, of why that turnaround happened, but it is interesting to see a window into like a world where like kind of what the Bundists and like the sort of the people arguing for Doikite wanted, it happened for like a narrow window in time. Yeah, so much. Um, yeah, I don't know. I could go on, but I don't feel like I have anything more to say about that right now. Another thing worth noting about Yiddish as it continues today is that there there is actually a rising native speaker birth rate in Hasidic and Haredi communities. Kind of like I was talking about before, it's used as a first language to differentiate against the secular world. So there's there were religious objections among more traditional denominations of Judaism. There were religious objections to political Zionism because you can't create a state in the land of Israel until Moshiach comes, right? There are also religious objections to uh, Hebraism because you shouldn't be using the holy tongue to talk about mundane, profane things. I think that it's interesting that both because it was like the language of the Yiddish masses and became so strongly affiliated with like socialist and internationalist movements, but also because it became so strongly affiliated with these sort of separatist, extremely religious movements Yiddish now has this dual association with both the secular far left and the religious far right, which I think is interesting because the Yiddish culture that you're likely to meet around like secular, like somewhat assimilated Jews in the U.S. is very different from like the Yiddish speaking culture that we're going to look at when we talk about Stiesel. Uh But before we get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the queerness of Yiddish. You mentioned Chandler, and he 
is um, credited with referring to Yiddish as a post-vernacular language. So kind of in response to everybody saying Yiddish is dead. No, it's not dead. It's post-vernacular is the idea that Chandler and Zohar Ido Wyman-Kelman, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Have both written about this idea about how like Yiddish speakers today are mostly made in the classroom rather than in the bedroom. With Hasidic communities, not entirely true, but in the secular world, that's that's very much true. And Wyman Kelman is using this to make a linkage to queerness, saying that Yiddish is now like non-future oriented and it has this sort of non-normative social reproduction and likening this to queer identity. You know, most of us are not having babies in the normative reproductive way. We're not necessarily future-oriented. That's arguable, I think, but uh, it's an interesting connection as to why queer people might be so disproportionately drawn to the language and culture, in addition to what we talked about before about just sort of identifying with the marginalized. And yeah, and like the idea of like perversion, like a perverted language could be seen in a positive light among trans and queer people who just sort of reject being looked down on as perverted or, or take pride in it, you know? So um, I also think that there's this idea of Yiddish as effeminate, which has like a, a really, really long history, not just like recent anti-Semitism, but like even within Jewish culture, like very early Yiddish literature consists of like prayer books and Bibles written by men for, and I quote, women or men who are like women meaning they don't understand Hebrew. But the idea that, like, if you speak Yiddish, you're like a woman. So I don't know. I just think that this, uh, this idea of effeminacy is, like, very part of the package of Yiddish and resonates a lot for a lot of queer people, probably, especially, like, AMAB. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Any thoughts you want to share about, like, Yiddish as a queer language or Yiddish culture as a queer culture? Yes, totally. Um, I think... Right, my, my like official Yiddish scholarly line is supposed to be like Yiddish is just a language, and we project meanings onto it. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, true. Yiddish isn't inherently more queer than any other language. Queer people are everywhere. Uh, That's like, true. And also, my like beautiful gay transsexual life is full of Yiddishists, and yeah. that's not a coincidence. You know, right? Like, <laughs> you know, and I think like when I eleven summers ago went to the Yiddish Book Center when I was eighteen years old to learn Yiddish and that was like the summer that I like went to a gay bar for the first time you know that my like older queer friends introduced me to and like I wasn't even queer yet ha um and I say this because like queer and trans people were really drawn to Yiddish when it started to be emergent like even in the 80s you know Mm -hmm. I think about like yeah you know Irina Klepfish um Mm -hmm. right is this like really iconic sort of like Ashkenazi like cis dyke poet who writes in this like really exciting kind of hybrid style between Yiddish and English. She was also like born in the Warsaw ghetto and grew up with both Yiddish and English in the U S you know, so it's, it's not like millennials found out about how Yiddish is queer again. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. And you have like the klezmatics who are like, I think more than one of them were like uh, openly queer uh, identified. Yeah, totally. And yet it also is true. And I think about the way that Jeffrey Chandler, who's gay, talks about post-vernacular Yiddish and in the opening uh, pages of his book, he talks about sort of the Yiddish moments of inflection that say like even scholars give to each other at a conference. 
dropping bits of Yiddish that allow them to become intimate and recognize one another. And, you know, mm. I read that and I think about Polari, uh, which is this, like, British gay men slang that drew oh. a lot from Yiddish. Yeah. Um, right? And, like... Like zhuzh, right? Isn't that... Yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. That part of that? Yeah. Zoe, again, here, just for the sake of accuracy, that particular word comes to Polari through Romani, not Yiddish. And I think about, like, the fact that, like, I've dropped Yiddish all the way into situationships, you know, like... <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I and I think it like sounds like flagging. Oh, it's totally flagging. It's absolutely a way to state a lot about my orientation, erotically, politically, like very swiftly mm-hmm. um, in a group. You know, and I'll say like you know I was thinking about you know you kind of talked about the like secular Hasidic binary, which is obviously like blah blah binaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, they're not real. Um, <laughs> you know, I think about, <laughs> but like all of the kind of like religious trans Yiddishkeit actually that has been like really sustaining to Mm -hmm. me yeah um, in my life you know and I think about like thank you for disrupting that binary by the way because I didn't want to (laughs) leave listeners with the impression that it's like all one or the other there are obviously many queer religious queer or queer religious Jews yeah 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 of course you know and I think about like I'm thinking about a couple of friends particularly who I like know from Yiddish who are also doing really beautiful like spiritual work that I think is very connected to what matters to these like important friend trans friends in my life about Yiddish is mm-hmm. like ancestor work is like understanding more about themselves and where they come from stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm, like, I'm, I'm engaging in, you know, that sort of path myself of like kind of reconnecting to, to practices that probably haven't been in my family for generations, but definitely becoming more observant in a way that I would not have been able to imagine from my like almost militant atheist upbringing. I'm sorry, you were saying... (laughs) Oh, what was I possibly saying? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I guess, you know, my my official uh, neutral scholarly stance, uh, because neutrality exists, uh, right, is that Yiddish is not queer, but all evidence points to the contrary. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't think Yiddish is inherently queer, but I do think it has had queerness projected onto it, and I think a lot of queers have been like, all right, then, I dig it. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, I don't think a language can be inherently queer, but I do think that Yiddish is in some ways historically queer. And and also in some ways very much not. But, like, yeah, I don't know. Shit's complicated. Shit is so complicated, yes. <laughs> no, I, lo- I really love how you put that. But of course it's true, because, like, nothing, like, inherently means anything, but if we make it mean it, it does. And, yeah. like, there's yeah. a really loud story about queerness in Yiddish. And, like, if I had not met all of these wonderful queers who, like, helped my you know little baby self in my like first forays into Yiddish life like maybe I wouldn't have stayed I don't know yeah and that's not just like me speculating and like your personal anecdote I've read like several articles of people being like yeah I went to like Yiddish intensive summer program and like a disproportionately large number of the people there were like openly queer and what's going on with that so, I mean, I'm speculating because this is, like, it seems like a phenomenon people are actually seeing. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that so much. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of, like, background with Yiddish or Hebrew or the language wars or gender in those languages uh, before we talk about Stiesel? I think let's talk about Stiesel. Let's talk about Stiesel. Okay, so 
how did you feel like the dynamics between Yiddish and Hebrew were showing up in the show? Like, is there anything that you notice? Um, I mean, immediately, the first thing that I notice, you know, like, Mea Sharim, where this, like, ultra-Orthodox neighborhood in Jerusalem where the majority of the show is set, like, yes, there's Yiddish happening on the street in this, like, particular Hasidic community, but there are kind of these two levels of, like, public and private that I think about. And it's, like, in Mea Sharim, which is this contained hub of Yiddish inside of the secular Hebrew of Israeli Jerusalem in this particular sort of like official Jewish state kind of way. Mm -hmm. Right. I I mean, I think too about the fact that like, I don't remember ever seeing Arabic in the show, Mm -hmm. um, which like says a lot, I think about the really like insular, I don't know, not insular, but like, you know, self-contained in a certain way community that the show is about, but also, and especially in the later seasons, um, I noticed, you know, it's not just there's sort of like this particular... Ashkenazi, right, Jewish society of Me'asharim, where Yiddish is happening in this Hasidic community surrounded by Hebrew, but then, you know, the older generations are more likely to speak Yiddish to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll speak it to their children, but the children will sometimes answer in Hebrew. The children will more often speak Hebrew to one another, mm-hmm. and they'll often speak Hebrew out in the street, but maybe they'll speak Yiddish at home. Yeah. Right, and so there are kind of these valences in which, like, Hebrew is common where it's like mainstream society surrounding Masharim, but then it becomes again in this sort of like almost this kind of like internal migration way it becomes then also the language of escape from home yeah or like a kind of like flag of i belong in mainstream society i'm connected to mainstream society Mm -hmm. for the uh for the children yeah 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 that's really interesting yeah, like you said, it's a lot more with the older generation. So we follow like four different generations in, of the Stiesel family. And so you've got this sort of like elderly matriarch, Malka, her widower sons, Shulam and Nuchum. And then you've got Shulam's children, and three of them are central characters. And then one of his daughters, who is a central character, you've got her children as well. Um, so yeah, so like I also noticed the generational divide. Um, where conversations between Shulam and younger generations typically take place in Hebrew. Although in religious use, characters like Shulam and Yosali sometimes pronounce words in an Ashkenazi accent. For them, like Hebrew has definitely become this language of the mundane, and it's specifically the Ashkenazi Hebrew, the like Loshan Koidish, that is still like the holy tongue. Um, and conversations between Shulam and his mother and brother usually take place in Yiddish. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Yiddish's gendered connotations have to some extent been replaced with generational connotations. Like, I didn't notice too many spots where it felt like it was a really gendered language. Did you? Yeah, totally. Actually, you know, as I'm kind of spouting what I'm saying, I'm remembering I wanted to read to you from, I actually learned about Stiesel from Shana Weiss, I don't know if you've read any of her stuff. She's a Jewish historian and scholar of pop culture um, with a focus on Israeli television. Okay. And she wrote this amazing piece for Ingeveb actually when I was, that I was an editor for. Cool. I think I might've seen this. Yeah. Stiesel's Ghosts, The Politics of Yiddish and Israeli Popular Culture. Mm-hmm. And Shana Weiss makes this really brilliant claim, um, actually, you know, to edit my own statement about Arabic, which I had totally forgotten about, and that forgetting, I think, is indicative, you know, for me. But, right, in terms of gendering, right, we're talking about, like, Israeli Jewish culture, where you're saying, like, Yiddish isn't gendered in the same way. But also, you know, I think that there is, like, a 
Hasidic Jewish masculinity, um, particularly that Shulam Shtisel, right, you know, where he's like heading this cheder, this like patriarch, he's expressing very much this Ashkenazi, like Yiddishkeit mm. masculinity through sort of like intellectual and scholarly labor mm-hmm. um, and mentorship, you know, which is not to say that there isn't plenty of like Yiddish Ashkenazi masculinity that also happens in like tattoo shops and boxing rings and whatever. And we can read Eddie Portnoy about that all day. In fact, his book about tough Jews, really good. <laughs> but, you know, I think about Shulam Shtisel and he is expressing this like very Yiddish, very Ashkenazi masculinity that is very masculine within the logic of the world of Mash Arbim, mm-hmm. but is not valued by kind of mainstream Israeli Jewish society. Right. Where Hebrew is the norm. Uh, Shana Weiss makes these two really interesting points about how Yiddish is working in the show um, that I thought I would bring up. She talks about this moment in the show when um, Bubi, uh, Shalom Shtisel's mother, a Holocaust survivor, she lives in a religious nursing home. She's almost 90 years old, recently lost one of her best friends and is starting to show signs of dementia. After Menucha, that's um, Shalom's wife, offers up, quote, ill-timed platitudes, Bubi calls her a klafta, which means bitch. Menucha is offended and leaves the room. And then Shana Weiss continues, Bubi's use of a mild Yiddish curse word is not just for comedic effect, but also serves as instruction for Shulam. Shortly after Bubi's outburst toward Menucha, Shulam breaks off the engagement with barely any explanation. Functioning as a one-woman chorus, Bubi's Yiddish out- outburst reveals a truth that could not be expressed in the Hebrew in mm. which Menucha and Shulam converse. Right? Well, this is interesting because Shulam mostly speaks Yiddish at home and works at, runs this cheder, this Yiddish religious primary school for boys, mm-hmm. um, and his fiance Menucha, they speak uh, Hebrew together. Mm-hmm. Menucha is not emotionally honest or engaged, and despite being close to the family, she lacks proficiency in their language of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, which is also a way of saying, right, sort of like Menucha is kind of failing to be the kind of woman that Bobby expects her to be mm-hmm. in a certain sense. Um, but then there's this other amazing moment. Um, Shana Weiss says, this conflict over Bobby's use of the word klafta prompted me to wonder what Shtisel's success says about the intersections between Yiddish and Israeli popular culture and what Yiddish on Israeli television can tell us about Zionism and its linguistic discontents, especially Arabic, the language of Israel's biggest minority. And she concludes the piece saying, Yiddish and Arabic in Israel share more than one might think, and this, is, this reality is expressed curiously in the show. In one of Shtisel's most moving scenes, there was a romance of sorts between Bubi and an elderly Mizrahi man in the nursing home. When they're together, he speaks only Arabic, while she speaks only Yiddish. Yet neither one seems to notice the lack of mutual comprehension, and they connect via their non-Hebrew languages in a way that horrifies Bubi's children. The seeming impropriety of their relationship is made worse by her paramour's Mizrahi background, and Shulam acts quickly to end the romance. This scene reinforces connections between Israel's disparate minorities, despite its absurdity and quick erasure. The common cause between Bubi and her lover is one created by Hebrew dominance, a force so crushing that at times resistance to it unites subjects who otherwise do not have much in common. Mm. As Bubi's romance indicates, Yiddish in Israel is deeply connected to Arabic, whether it is the almost eradicated Arabic of Mizrahi Jews or the Arabic of Palestinian Israelis. Israeli Yiddish exists not just in relationship to Hebrew, but to Hebrew's other others as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a totally different context for them. We're used to thinking about Yiddish here in the U.S. or in Europe. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing that. That's Yeah, I, I, I read that too, and I, I thought that was a really interesting uh, scene to highlight because it was one that 
it was one that kind of uh, went over my head when I watched it. I did notice a few interesting dynamics between Yiddish and Hebrew. I think there's some interesting shifts happening, uh, at least in the way it's portrayed in the show. I noticed that at times Yiddish is used by Shulam as a language for transmitting information confidentially. In the first season, during a challenging conversation with an estranged daughter that takes place in front of her non-Yiddish-speaking Chabad Lubavitch family, Shulam wants to talk to her privately, and he asks her if she still understands Yiddish and so that he can keep things between them. And then later on in, in the third season, Shulam's shown teaching his granddaughter Ruhami, who, like, over the course of the show, we've seen how Ruhami has proven herself to be really smart and strong and capable, and she's apparently now working as his assistant at the cheder. So he's teaching her to speak Yiddish, which gives a sense of him having greater trust in her. Moments like these, to me, signal that this historic division of Yiddish as the language of the masses and Hebrew as the sort of, like, mystified language of the select few has really gone through a dramatic reversal um, so that now Hebrew is this sort of mundane language of everyday life and Yiddish is the language of the trusted few. And I've, I've heard other people echo similar things of like, yeah, if my grandpa wanted to write something to my grandma and, and not have any, any of the kids know what he was talking about, he would write it in Yiddish. So it's really gone through a transformation there. I said that I don't think that it's kept necessarily the same level of gendering although it's interesting what you pointed out about like Manucha speaking Hebrew sort of like failing to live up to Malka's like idea of Yiddish womanhood um, that is interesting I hadn't noticed that I feel like some of those gender associations are a little bit harder to read in the show because like you said Shulam gives off such the, such a patriarchal presence and he's the one who he's probably sees speaking Yiddish the most. But the Yiddish and Ashkenazi pronunciation does really appear to have retained its stigmatization. So there's scenes where Nuchem and Shulam are attempting to appear impressive or professional to others, where they introduce themselves as Nahum or Shalom, respectively. So this includes when talking to religious women they're courting, which could be in an attempt to appear more masculine. And then uh, another moment where I wasn't sure exactly what was happening, but there was definitely something Yiddish happening, was that, there, I don't know if you remember this um, director of the art gallery, Kaufman, who Shulam Sanakiva is, you know, much to this dismay of, of his dad, is trying to be an, a painter. He's working with Kaufman in this gallery. Whenever Shulam refers to Kaufman, he often first calls him Koifman, which is like that sort of uh, classic vowel shift uh, from the German Germanic au to the Yiddish oi. So it's, I can't tell exactly what's happening there. Like, I don't know if this is Shulam being like ideologically opposed to Kaufman's assimilation and proud of his own Yiddish pronunciation. And he's like trying to like, bring him back into the fold or I don't know if this is more like he doesn't like Kaufman and he wants to take him down a pig by associating him with Yiddish but there's definitely like something happening there yeah I mean I think too about like broadly speaking the ways in which you know art making and painting are so like unacceptable to mm. Shulam as something that his son might do um mm. and yeah this kind of like interesting logic in which you know, Shulam is watching his son, he believes, undermine his own masculinity through this pursuit of mm. a career in art that necessitates moving through 
the secular and Hebrew speaking world. Yeah. And maybe he is, do you think he is undermining Kaufman's masculinity in response to that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Interesting. So it's still there. And also, I think particularly because, you know, Kauf in German, but Koif in Yiddish is to buy. Hmm. Well, Koifen, um, the infinitive, right? Yeah. I hadn't made that connection. I've been accused of reading too closely plenty of times. So like, who's to say? No, no, no. I think that's great. um, But yeah, I think there's something too about the fact that the art dealer, his name is like man who buys things. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and Sholem is like really not about that. Yeah. He is really, really not about the ways in which like Hebrew and commerce Mm -hmm. rather than like, you know, he very much understands his life's work of educating children is something that like happens to make him money, but he's not ever like rolling in it Mm -mm. and yeah that's not what he's up to yeah right so you know i think there's perhaps something there about this like denigration of buying and the emphasis on the yiddish pronunciation the incorrect on purpose yiddish pronunciation of this Mm -hmm. hebrew speaking art dealer's name Mm -hmm. yeah and a link being made between assimilated jewry and capitalism and and materialism and away from his sort of like traditionalist religious values that he holds dear. Yeah, very much. Yeah. So speaking of traditional religious values and like sort of disdain for secular society, I think that that's something that also goes really hand in hand with the Yiddish in the show. So there's this family that has this attachment to Yiddish and to their religious devotion. There's like very frequent moments of derision of like, all non-religious Israelis, like all secular Jews are Zionists to them. So they frequently refer to any Israelis outside their community as Zionists, plain and simple. And like there's times when they seem ambivalent to the non-religious world around them. Like you've got Akiva pursuing his art career. Um, you've got a scene where Shulam is like briefly considering like, eh, is it really such a big deal if the kids watch the like Independence Day fighter jet show? But at other times, Zionism is explicitly condemned as uh, this warlike ideology. Shulam's national religious IDF veteran brother-in-law is clearly looked down on as barely being Jewish. Yeah, and then I think the best encapsulation of this is Nuchum, who frequently refers to all members of secular society, or really anyone he doesn't like, as damn evildoers. But obviously, like in the Yiddish Ashkenazi-inflected Loshan Koidish, like all the time, that's like his catchphrase. So yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting that the show really does retain this. Um, even after Hebrew sort of dominance in the state of Israel and in many ways in global Jewish life has won out, the show is still invested in making the distinction, the polarization between Zionism and Hebraism on one side and Yiddish, an anti or non-Zionist Jewish identity on another. That's interesting to me that that still exists, even in Palestine, even in Israel. What do you think about that binary? Is that a binary? I don't know. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's just very politically interesting to notice the, like, yes, as you're saying, you know, the sort of antagonistic relationship between the Jews of Ma'a Sharim and the Israeli government. You know, and that's very hopeful to me in a certain sense. (laughs) You know, I wish all of us antagonism toward our governments. <laughs> right. And I'm, now I'm thinking again about Shana Weiss's piece, you know, that's called Stiesel's Ghosts and kind of this idea of 
ghosts in terms of both like, you know, Bobby who survived the Holocaust, mm. but also, you know, right, her date, boyfriend, whatever, you know, this Mizrahi man who's also in the nursing home with her, where there's this also this kind of like ghost of rich sort of like Arab Jewish life that the Israeli government is pretty uninterested in. Or, you know, the Israeli government is like quite actively working to suppress. Hmm. You know, and I think about the ways in which the show then, you know, is sort of revealing the way in which this like ethno state and Zionism is failing even the people it purports to be serving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think also about just broadening the scope outside of Mea Shearim, but like not too far beyond uh, the bounds of, you know, similar communities, um, thinking about the other. I guess I would say most notable portrayal of Yiddish on TV recently in Unorthodox. Uh, there's a scene where the Satmar Jews arriving in Berlin, I think, are being asked if they're Israeli and they like spit and say, you know, USA or I don't know, point to their Yankee baseball cap or something. I can't remember. But there is clearly an impression of. I think it's interesting that portrayals of Jewish resistance to Zionism are among the very religious when there's clearly like a much broader range of non or anti-Zionist Jews out there. I wonder if because Hasidic Jews are sort of looked down on or othered, you know, more so than many other Jews, if it feels safer for mainstream productions to characterize them as being anti-Zionist than it would feel to portray anti-Zionist Jews from other uh, sectors of world Jewry. I don't know if I'm making any sense with that, but <laughs> for as much as Stiesel, I think, humanizes and normalizes Haredi life, I do think it's still very much for like outsiders looking in, and there's still very much a sense of like they're doing their thing, but they're not us. And I wonder what it would mean to portray Jews that are like maybe more readily identifiable with to broad secular audiences to show other Jews as equally invested in Yiddish or equally invested in rejection of like an ethno state. Yeah, I like that a lot. I'm curious about it because, you know, I know that I'm thinking about it as a like white Ashkenazi Jew living in the U.S., you know, where like... I know Hasidic Jews mostly from growing up around them some and also from the Yiddish world, but I think that the different Jewish worlds in the U.S., for instance, are very segregated from one another along many lines, including this one. And so I'm thinking about, like, you know, Stiesel came to Netflix, like, last year, maybe? I think, like, right around the pandemic start. Yeah, I was definitely watching it during pandemic times. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm very much imagining, like, a U.S. viewership that's, like, largely white and millennial seeing Jews who they don't necessarily like recognize themselves in, or if they do, they project an antiquity and a nostalgia onto them because they're engaging in Yiddish. Mm. Um, you know, and I guess I'm really thinking about Shadisla more as a political tool in this moment, you know, where I'm thinking like, is it really easy to say like those Jews are not like us and don't have our shared values and, you know, Hasidic Jews are so weird. And so like, this reifies a like white American Jewish support for Zionism. Um, mm. But also, yes, there's like room to tell a different story. Yeah, I think it's 100% a valuable thing to show that there are Jews living in Israel that like don't agree with Zionist politics. I think that's absolutely a good thing. 
Um, but I think it's also telling, like, which Jews they're showing doing that in, like, a successful television show. And why aren't other portrayals as successful, I think, is worth thinking about. Oh, yeah, so much, so much to talk about. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with Hebrew or Yiddish or Shtisel? Shoot. Um, I mean, surely there is. I could go on and on, but I can also definitely feel my brain like powering. Yeah, the <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is to say that at this moment, perhaps no. Okay. Perhaps we just like solved it, you know? Yeah. Thank you for a really, really thought provoking discussion. And maybe we'll do this again. Yeah. And I'm so excited to go watch Tishal again, like thinking about thinking about all of this with you. Yeah, me too. And so I'll splice this together and upload it somewhere. Don't know yet where. And hopefully we'll be able to like add some show notes so that you can track down some of the things that we referenced. Yeah, that sounds great. And maybe we'll do another one of these. It would be. Yeah, I would love that. All right. Thanks for listening to our inaugural episode of Turn It Over Again. We hope you enjoyed it. Dade Clark and Zoe Steinfield recorded the audio for this episode. Zoe Steinfield did the cover art and sound editing. And our theme music is Suzuki Freilichs by the wonderful band Ezekiel's Wheels. Check them out.